Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. We're bringing you a special two-part episode featuring Philip Burka of the City Inclusive Entrepreneurship Program at the National League of Cities, and Samira Cook-Gaines, Director of Strategic Partnerships for Rising Tide Capital, as the two share their unique points of view on driving entrepreneurship and support for micro-businesses. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. So Samira, please go ahead and tell us a little bit about your work and about your organization. Yes, thanks, David. Um, I am um, the Managing Director uh, for Strategic Partnerships for Rising Tide Capital, um, headquartered in Jersey City, New Jersey. And Rising Tide transforms lives and communities through entrepreneurship. What that means is we really empower entrepreneurs to really take those ideas and grow, thrive, and then flourish. As a result, that bleeds directly into not just their families, but their communities too. Um, Rising Tide is 18 years old, and they provide direct technical assistance um, through the Community Business Academy. And that Community Business Academy is a 12-week program where um, it's experiential kind of a really good management training program, not just your typical how to write a business plan. Because we, what we really want is we want our entrepreneurs not to have a document, but our, docu- our entrepreneurs to really have an understanding, a knowledge. So the Community Business Academy um, really is the first step in when we're meeting our entrepreneurs. We then provide mentor mentorship, coaching, and counseling during um, our, that second phase of, um, of our interaction with our entrepreneurs who really do become family. And we also support them through our credit to capital program and helping them connect to our partners who provide um, capital. And specifically, as the managing director for strategic partnerships, I help share this model. So after 18 years, Rising Tide Capital has had tremendous impact in the community um, and for individual entrepreneurs. And, you know, around year 10 or 11, the thought was, how do we share this? How do we get this impact to, to really transform lives and communities outside of Jersey City, right? Or outside of New Jersey, because we're in several cities across the state. So... For me, I help locate organizations that are interested in entrepreneurship as a solution to community building, to wealth creation, to poverty alleviation, and those organizations that are looking for a solution don't have to reinvent the wheel. We actually license our full model, white labeled, so it belongs to Um, It belongs to the organization. It's not powered by (laughs) Rising Tide or hosted by or any of those, you know, cool partnership tags. It really is your org um, and our community business academy. So we go alongside the organizations and we really focus on capacity building for the organization. So um, goes beyond the train the trainer concept of a facilitator in a classroom 
because we actually um, really do a training for leadership too. So we have a mission basics focused leadership training that's really all about the organization and how you serve underserved entrepreneurs. So it really takes a lot of kind of mission vision alignment, um, but it's really the best part of my job. I absolutely love it, you know, making new friends and finding folks who have, you know, like minds and like hearts. Well, I'm looking forward to the, the conversation today. Phil, let me have you also introduce yourself and your connection to Samira. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, David. And it, it's a wonderful, wonderful, it, this is one of the most best parts of my job is getting to connect with organizations like yours, um, getting to work with Samira every day is, is and, and to kind of elevate the work that she's doing at Rising Tide is uh, one of the one of the best parts of my job. Uh, my name is Phil Burka. I am the program director for the City Inclusive Entrepreneurship Network at the National League of Cities. Um, the National League of Cities is an advocacy organization uh, for the nation's 19,000 cities, towns, and villages. So we basically advocate um, on behalf of localities across the U.S., uh, mostly uh, in, in Congress and other um, other like federal venues. Um, at the same time, we also have a technical assistance and uh, best practices arm that really focuses on crystallizing what are best practices that um, cities across the country can be implementing to make them you know, more, health, more healthy communities, more prosperous communities. So we have centers that work on uh, housing and economic development, uh, on sustainability, energy, um, these types of things. So my program is nestled within that technical uh, assistance arm. Um, and we are basically focused on helping cities move from more traditional forms of economic development, uh, business retention, expansion, kind of offering incentives uh, to woo large companies to relocate. We want cities to move away from that. Um, still, you know, keep it as an arrow in the quiver, but deploy it more strategically uh, and move towards economic development that is focused on enhancing innovation and entrepreneurship, especially for historically excluded entrepreneurs. So each year, um, we work with cities to identify one program policy or practice that we can help them adopt that will enable more inclusive economic growth, uh, enhance economic mobility for underrepresented communities. Uh, in the past, these have ranged from launching new microloan hubs to increasing equity in procurement to exploring how to uh, help business owners uh, you know, raise rounds of capital through equity crowdfunding. Um, and so there's 11 of these tracks that cities can opt into. And then once they commit to, to participating in our program, we connect them with resources, partners, peer cities that are working on the same initiative, uh, and, and make sure that they follow through on a commitment over the course of the year and implement some real tangible changes to their economic development policies. And the way, uh, the reason that I know Samira is that Samira is one of these technical assistance organizations that we connect cities in our program to. Um, and specifically, Samira is tied to a commitment that I think this year has five or six cities in it that are really focused on enabling entrepreneurs who are have been kind of operating in the informal economy, informal gray market um, space, but otherwise who have legal businesses, uh, making sure that they are licensed and registered with the city. One thing that we found uh, through the pandemic is that cities came to realize that many of their entrepreneurs and small business owners were unlicensed unregistered. 
They didn't know who they were, where they were, what kind of business they did. And then that had a bunch of knock-on effects that were really, really harmful to entrepreneurs. Um, they didn't have access to federal relief programs. Many local relief programs made it uh, were contingent upon them being uh, registered and licensed. Um, and so we want to change that and make sure that cities are um, becoming more resilient. This is what making you know what making a small business ecosystem more resilient looks like is making sure that everyone there's a safety net for all of these business owners. So uh, Samira and her team uh, is working with a group of cities on that this year. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, I'll I'll ask a series of questions, but feel free to kind of weave in your work. And uh, I tell uh, all of our podcast guests that we've been learning through storytelling for thousands of years, but in corporate America, we've kind of gotten away from storytelling. So any stories that you all have about entrepreneurs or programs, uh, please feel free to weave in. But we'll talk first about capital access. Uh, it's on top of mind, and especially as uh, the economy slows a little bit and ca capital access becomes uh, harder. It's uh, really hard for small businesses to be able to get access to capital, especially if they're a micro business. So Samira, in your line of work, uh, how do you help tackle the capital access problem for underrepresented entrepreneurs? You know, David, that's a good start. And Rising Tide Capital actually started um, with the thought that they would be a micro lender um, and that, you know, following a model, you know, um, they had been, our co-founders had been studying the Grameen model, just, you know, trying to figure out that capital space and what they came to understand specifically around micro entrepreneurs um, and in our disadvantaged um, or underserved uh, communities, because the thing about it is they're not at a disadvantage, but they have not received the things that they need to excel and succeed. And what that would be would be knowledge, just the first kind of piece of our capital in Rising Tide Capital is knowledge capital. The second would be social capital and then financial capital. We always talk about the financial capital piece, but the big connection to that is that knowledge capital. So not even knowing how to operate a business. The first thing we do is really build up their knowledge capital. Um, and we do that through cohort-based learning. And we talked about this in our NLC cohort as well. Cohort-based learning just really has an exponential effect, right? It builds social capital. So for example, the informal entrepreneurship um, cohort, you know, we have folks in, um, you know, Larder Hill, Florida, talking to folks in Washington, D.C. about their returning citizens programs. You know, we have folks in Philadelphia talking to folks in L.A. about their art programs, you know, and their artistic entrepreneurs. So for us, it really starts with the knowledge capital and actually understanding how to manage a business. And by way of the cohort-based learning in the peer-to-peer -peer learning, because these are experts, right, in their field. Our NLC cohort is made up of really, really sharp professionals um, in the economic development world. So just being able to have that peer-to-peer -peer learning um, within our cohort um, for our Community Business Academy Entrepreneurship Program. 
that then takes them to that third piece that everyone's talking about, right? The financial capital. The financial capital is about being prepared, having all the things you need to apply for that microloan. And we um, form partnerships with CDFIs, microlenders, but we also really do encourage things like non-traditional capital. Um, and non-traditional, I mean, you know, a pitch competition, you know, and getting our entrepreneurs prepared to pitch their businesses to win, you know, a couple thousand dollars to move to the next thing. That knowledge capital, also social capital, and then finally the financial capital is what we provide through partnership. Knowledge capital capital through training, the social capital through the basis of our cohorts, and finally the financial capital, which everyone is really talking about. You go there with all of these connections, all of this understanding of your business, able to pitch your business, and boom, making those connections to partners that can actually lend, specifically to micro entrepreneurs who don't have a lot of the things that um, are needed or the time um, to give to those things, right? Big banks don't want to have those conversations with, you know, a pop-up cupcake shop, right? But through our partnerships, that's how we, that's how we do it. The CDFIs, um, local competitions, grants. We also help our folks apply and seek grants. And that's really the, the financial capital piece, I think, that can often be underestimated. Everybody thinks they need a business loan. Everyone does not need a business loan. Well said. I'm going to, Phil, I'm going to ask you a slightly different question on this topic. But before that, Samira, I think I think very valid points, right? We talk about financial capital, but social capital, uh, the knowledge capital, uh, I think are just as equally important if you know how to uh, derive unit economics, chances are you're going to have a profitable business. <laughs> if you know a local developer or a local accountant, there's that trust already. Or if you yeah. know about local programs available, so the social capital, the knowledge capital, I think points well said. Can you give me any statistics around uh, the success rate of your entrepreneurs? Oh, absolutely. So some of our um, some of our most impactful statistics come around um, not just revenue increase because we do we'll have a, a revenue increase of sixty to seventy percent. But what I think is more um, transformational than just revenue increase is household income. Because what we're talking about is not just making the dollar from the sale, but how much of that dollar actually goes back in to help the family, right? And that is at over 60%. I believe it was 61 last year. Okay. So the idea of um, a typical client or entrepreneur through Rising Tide would be a single woman um, nearly 40 um, with children and an income that's about 20,000 under, 20,000 under the sustainable income rate, right? So we're not talking about the poverty rate because no one's uh, striving to just be in poverty, right? <laughs> so we're talking about a sustainable uh, wage. 
oftentimes that entrepreneur's that entrepreneur's um, business brings in that twenty thousand dollars. So we are talking about the the impact of the revenue that comes back to the household. Another interesting statistic, I think, specifically around kind of policy and advocacy for entrepreneurship is one about we track reduction in use of public assistance. Now, not anywhere have I ever, and I have run my own entrepreneurship programs, not anywhere have I ever, um, you know, been a part of a team that has done that. And that reduction um, is over 50% reduction in use of public assistance. It really talks about, um, it lends itself to really messaging what entrepreneurship really means, right? It's beyond the the education barriers. It's beyond the um, equity barriers. It's actually the bridge, right? When we think about, um, you know, the equity gap when it comes to race, gender, entrepreneurship is that tool that makes that up. So those are some of the stats that I um, am really fond of. Uh, but we also serve about um, about a thousand entrepreneurs a year. And um, we, in New Jersey alone, manage about 20 community business academies a year. Wow. Wow. Amazing stats. I'll come back to this. So Phil, I want to ask you the same question from a different perspective. So you go into cities and you're trying to convince them to focus on entrepreneurship instead of business attraction and, and solely on business attraction retention. And they're going to tell you, well, it doesn't drive press. It you know doesn't show up on our GDP. Uh, half of them won't register their business. So what are your selling points? And I mean, these stats sound phenomenal. And if you look at this over time, right? The three of us know that entrepreneurship is the best path to wealth creation. How do you convince the people that you're going to go talk to about this? Yeah, I have a, we have a friend in uh, the city of Long Beach, uh, who, former economic development director, John Kiesler, um, who talks about this in a really simple way. And he says, the entire goal of this office is to put money in the pockets of residents. That is what we do. We put money in the pockets of small business owners and entrepreneurs. And when we do that, the city wins. The city will make more money naturally because of that process. Um, but that's kind of, I mean, I, I think that is the attitude that we want to instill in city leaders across the country. Um, and sometimes it is a really hard sell. I mean, sometimes you jump on the phone with with an economic development office and you're like, oh, this conversation just in the first five minutes is not going to go the way that you want it to. Um, but I think a lot of other people are are very open to it, especially when you frame it around small business support. Um, in America, I mean, you know, saying you support small business owners is, is just, I think, a given. Um, it's very politically favorable. Uh, so sometimes we'll, we'll kind of use that as the, you know, as a language that we can all agree upon. In reality, though, it's very, very, very hard because... If you look at an economic developer's role and say business attraction retention, what is it? Taking somebody to the ballpark, showing them land that's been, you know, readied for uh, use, 
showing them about the economic lift that will bring to the community versus when you support entrepreneurship, sometimes it's very thankless, right? Like you're forcing people to come to workshops. Uh, and also, uh, honestly, when you talk about entrepreneurship to small businesses, you're trying to teach them that you get into entrepreneurship to create wealth, not to become poor. So you can't just generalize it and say, oh, you know, we've got an entrepreneurship program in the city. You have to actually, you know, go through the, mo the actual process, like bringing in rising tide capital or bringing in those partners. Uh, and, and a lot of the time, this is a work that's measured in decades, not through a year long program. That I think that's a challenge. great point. Yeah, I think, I think that is absolutely correct. Um, I think that cities in particular underutilize their convening power in, in this space. I think the number one thing cities can do uh, or mayors can do is champion entrepreneurship, um, say that it is a priority. Uh, during the early stages of the pandemic, when a lot of the eyes were on localities trying to you know, find solutions for uh, and, and provide support for small businesses, uh, that were, you know, facing a collapse across the country. Um, the cities that were the most prepared for that and faced, you know, the least economic devastation were the cities that had really strong cross-sector partnerships, really strong networks um, and connections between the, you know, the political apparatus of their city and the economic apparatus and anchor institutions, utility companies, large corporations. I mean, these the more connected these partners were, and a lot of times it is the mayor who has to step in and, and get these people in a room, like literally in a room um, on, on a regular basis. Uh, those were the cities that were much better uh, prepared to respond uh, to the pandemic and also who were able to get the word about out about capital access opportunities to you know provide that emergency assistance to businesses that needed it. And I, I do want to jump in and just support everything that Phil is saying around convening, um, being in several roles, you know, in my multiple lives, you know, being a part of the city, being an actual, you know, that person who's making the decision on whether or not we're spending the time wooing the whoever or and the money. But let's just be crystal clear here. The time and the money on wooing whoever versus trying to build a pipeline of our own local entrepreneurs, you know? Um, the city being able to convene is really um, a huge thing here. It's It commands the attention of partners on all levels. Um, so even making the connections between your your local makers and your Whole Foods, you know, your local makers um and your target, you know, your big box stores don't have to, it doesn't have to be a and or, it can be a both and. And sometimes the city um, is, you know, they're the one person, the one entity that's able to broker those deals and be the voice of their local entrepreneurs and um, in rooms where that's their next big opportunity. Um, I think about my time in Washington, D.C., and I remember when there was not a Whole Foods in DC. There was one, that one on Peach Street was there forever. But Whole Foods was not a thing, you know? It just was not a thing. And as the city was growing, our makers were popping up all over the place. And what did the city decide to do? 
the city started brokering those opportunities. So there's a, you know, a local foods shelf, you know, in the grocery stores. There's, um, there are several little um, pop-up opportunities through a city-run um, and then nonprofit-run store uh, called Made in DC, right? Like it gives the city, it can convene on a very high level, again, can broker your first contract with Whole Foods and on a very local level can introduce you to a brand new neighborhood that didn't even know you, didn't even knew you exist by providing pop-up space. I am a huge fan for that. Like, and I know Phil, you all have a paper, I think on procurement as well, right? Uh, huge fan of the convening power of city and state and how underutilized it is. Uh, and also the, the challenges within it. Uh, but at the very least, having uh, allocation of procurement dollars, uh, first well-defined procurement dollars, but then removing the red tape around it. Like we are a small business ourselves and we have to walk the talk every single day. And in some states, a contract can take nine to 12 months. There is no need to. I'm sure there is vetting required, et cetera. But a lot of it is just bureaucracy, right? And then when they say small business, micro businesses, single uh uh, person uh, entities struggle even more because a, a small business might have 50 employees and have a procurement manager, right? So Phil, I want to ask you one question and then Samir, I want you to also answer the same question. Uh, the, the, actually, the first part, Phil, just for you, which is what is a, a poster child city that you all bring up in your work, right? And then uh, the question to both of you. Um, so we've talked about Thanks for listening to this special two-part episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Check the show notes for links to the full episode and to all our past shows, or to send us ideas and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>